you know, on the one hand, sermons are personal. On the other hand, they like really shouldn't be personal, if you know what I mean. But this is the most uncanny thing. I am quite convinced that uh, if two sons were standing before God, like Todd and Dennis, I'm quite sure that Dennis is the favored son because he gets to teach next week on love. I've had to do hope, peace, and joy at just ironically probably three or four of the most difficult weeks of my whole life. And so um, I've had to actually ask this question, Joy, is it possible, you know? (laughs) Hope, can you find it, you know? Peace, does it exist? And so at least you can know this morning I'm keeping it real, that, uh, that this is not theory. This is uh, from the heart. So obviously the answer of our readings this morning is, yes, of course joy is possible. And in Advent, we think of it especially uh, of it being possible because of this time we live in in expecting the Lord's return. But the joy is also possible, our readings tell us, by spreading joy to others. There's an old Jewish proverb that says, um, what soap does to the body, laughter and joy do to the soul. So just, you know, think of an evening where you had friends over and you just kind of told stories all night and laughed and just think about how you fell asleep that night. Or, you know, you're out to dinner with a bunch of friends and you just, you know, you don't plan on it, but you just end up telling goofy stories and stupid jokes, and you leave the restaurant literally with your body feeling different because of what joy does to the soul. Well, our reading in Isaiah this morning, which of course is fulfilled by Jesus, we see that in Luke 4, where Jesus one time in worship, just like some of you stood up, Wayne stood up this morning and read from the scroll of Isaiah at one point in, in the ancient church, Jesus would have stood up before there actually was a church. He would have stood up in a synagogue service And he would have been handed the scroll of Isaiah and opened it to this portion of reading. And he read it and said, this reading is now fulfilled in your presence. And so Jesus fulfills this, and thus it becomes a model for us in finding real and great joy, and that is in service to others. For Jesus said, he sent me to preach good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to announce freedom to captives. Pardon, excuse me, for prisoners to announce the year of his grace and to comfort all who mourn, giving them good news, healing, liberty, release, comfort, and to show them what the year of the Lord's favor would look like. Now, some of you who are veteran Anglicans or veteran Catholics or veteran Greek Orthodox or something, you'll know that Advent is sometimes called a penitential season. And that just simply means a season in which it's designed for us to have chances to examine ourselves. And so if we think of that aspect of Advent this morning, of examine, then this passage, this reading from Isaiah, profoundly challenges all forms of cultural Christianity, all forms of church that would make church an end in itself. What this passage tells us, that we're not only recipients of joy, but we are to be dispensers of joy, that real Advent joy happens when Christians turn their attention to those who are named as the recipients of this good news. Who, who, let me look at your reading in Isaiah if you want in your order for worship. Who are the recipients of this good news? Is it not the oppressed, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners, the mournful, and the faint of spirit? 
So the vision here is, especially we think of as a church, the vision here is, is of a restored Israel who's living as a community of joy, of jubilee, of having experienced exile and deliverance. They now become God's people who help others who are experiencing their own kinds of exiles, their own kinds of captivity, to be free. What God envisioned here is a, a people of his. We could think of Israel in the past and of the church today, that God's people would be a people who lived as the people of good news, of liberation and justice and comfort in such a way that the world would take notice of our behavior and our service to them in this Christ-like way and thus be drawn to God. So in Advent, this is what these readings are trying to do for us. You'll notice this morning in our readings, no manger scenes, uh, no angels, nothing like that. Because this week of Advent is asking us to remember not that Jesus came, but why Jesus came. And that is to usher in this new world that he called the kingdom of God. This world that would be completely different where God finally had his way. And where the rule and reign of God was being known amongst man, then, then men and women would finally experience what it is that God had in mind when he created. This is why we sing, joy to the world, the stock market has arisen. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, Joy to the world, Black Friday sale, you know? No, it's joy to the world, the Lord has come. Well, this is only joy because this Lord has a kingdom. That is to say, he has uh, an expression of his will. And when that expression of his will comes, then indeed, joy to the world. Now, if you look at your psalm, you see that these are people who have experienced both exile and being delivered from the, by the hand of God. And, and you, you see that for them it seemed kind of like a dream, like too good to be true, that, that when God really did return his people from exile and bring them back to Zion, that it produced in them this happiness, this laughter, this joy. And so the psalm this morning really has a perfect Advent shape to it. It begins with thanksgiving, if you look at verses one and two, for this deliverance that they have experienced. But it ends with the expectation of a new miracle to take place as well. And this is the business of going out in your life and sowing in tears and then reaping in joy. Now, I normally only wear this stole for very special occasions like Michael's ordination yesterday or something like that when I'm wearing all my bishopy getup. Um, and I always forget to tell people what it means. This was given to me when I was consecrated bishop by the former archbishops of Southeast Asia, Moses Tay and Yong Ping Chung. It was, uh, you know, handmade, and it's a really, you know, precious gift. Now, I can't read Chinese, but uh, sewn inside is what it means, so I know what it means. <laughs> <clears throat> It says in Chinese, the equivalent of sow in tears, reap in joy. And it was given to me by these archbishops to say, this is not only the nature of Christian ministry, but this is the nature of Christian life. That we are constantly sowing in just the normal dust of life. 
And I can't be the only one in this room for whom the last three weeks have been difficult. In fact, I know I'm not the only one in this room. Some would say that this has been some of the most difficult weeks of their whole life. So that's not a rhetorical question. Is joy possible? For lots of us facing death and sickness and hardship and economic struggle, layoff, Lots of people are working harder than they've ever worked for less money. It's not a rhetorical question. It's, it's kind of the absolute question for increasing numbers of people, not just in America, but all over the world. So this business of sowing in tears and reaping in joy, this is covenant language, and it means to say to us that God is always faithful, and that even in the times where you're sowing in tears, you can just count on it. That the God who, when this covenant was made, you know, remember the story, passed through the smoking fire pots while Abraham was asleep, that God is the God that you can count on. He'll always be there. But, but being Advent, this is also new covenant language, which is to say it has in mind the second coming, that those of us who, who live between the first and the second coming of Jesus, that we can expect his, that kind of blessing as well. And this is also baptism language. As we baptize Anna and Ezra this morning, it's a very similar thing in that they're beginning a journey that will be completed at, at confirmation, but this is a, a covenantal sort of thing. So the psalmist tells us that those who went off with heavy hearts will come home laughing with armloads of blessings. For this is the divine reality, and this is why we stop in Advent, we light this pink candle, and we have sermon titles like this because it reminds us that forests burn, they grow back. How's that happen? Bones are broken, they heal. How's that happen? I mean, probably someone in this room knows, at least on a molecular level, how that happens. But what about on a submolecular level? What about on a subatomic level? How does that really happen? How did that get designed? Even if you can explain it anatomically, how did that get designed into it? And, and our readings this morning are just trying to tell us that grief always leads to a new normal, that sorrow, regret, trouble, and tears are the seeds of joy, and that somehow in the goodness, the mysterious, amazing, transcendent goodness of God, that he has the ability to restore life and joy even in the middle of things going wrong. And so when we stop and ask, is joy possible? The answer, of course, is, you know, yeah, just sort of hang in there, patiently waiting for the seeds of sorrow to germinate. Because you know what happens, right, if you plant a seed? I mean, probably you all planted a seed in sixth grade or something, right? You know what happens when you plant a seed, right? First thing that happens is a little shoot comes up, right? Wrong. First thing that happens when you plant a seed, that seed stays buried in the ground. And it appears to all rational thinking people that nothing good is happening. It seems to have just been put in the ground and died. Except what you can't see is that, again, through a process that's amazing and mysterious to me, 
the seed through moisture in the ground begins to take on nutrients. And the first thing that happens is something internal. It's something very deep and unseen. The first thing that happens is the taproot goes down. And then enough of a root structure begins to take place that once that little shoot opens up above the ground, it can live. So what happens underground is sort of like, you know, sowing these seeds of tears, and then you begin to reap joy. That's the vision that's behind the answer to this question, is joy possible? But Eugene Peterson, as you you all know I love, says this, that common strategies for achieving joy for most of us are surface only. We think of things like changing scenery or eliminating the things that hurt or getting rid of pain by numbing the nerve endings or getting rid of the insecurity by eliminating the risks. So we get rid of the disappointments of life by depersonalizing our relationships. We try to lighten the boredom of such a life then by buying joy in the form of vacations and entertainment. When in fact what these readings would ask us to do is to not eliminate things that hurt necessarily, but to see them as part of the deal. That we don't necessarily try to numb the nerve endings. We don't eliminate risks. We don't depersonalize our relationships because we could get hurt, but rather we find in them the seeds of what will become joy. So if you look at your psalm again, there's not a hint in that psalm of the kind of medicating of pain that we try to do. Instead, you see this business of joy. And so I just wanna stop and give you a little mental picture this morning of what joy is and then we'll be done. In a sense, there's kind of a natural joy, you know, a gladness and contentment, a kind of satisfaction. There's what you might think of as kind of a moral joy, which would kind of point to peace or serenity. And then there's a kind of spiritual joy, uh, the joy of, of faith, and that frankly only people of faith can have, where you're kind of rejoicing in hope. There's, it's kind of a delight in your mind of the good that you know is coming because you live between these times. You live in this Advent season. And you see God is both the source and the object of our joy, meaning he's the one uh, to whom we're joyous. And so the Bible says things like, the joy of the Lord is my strength. It says things like that in God's presence there's fullness of joy. We didn't read this Advent reading this morning, but we could have read where the angel said, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. In the new heavens, in the new earth, think of the, uh, that passage in the end of Matthew where Jesus says to his first friends, enter into your master's joy. Jesus said to his first followers when he was explaining to them that he was leaving, John 15, he says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I had this really funny, perhaps even irreverent thought this week. I I pictured Jesus in the garden before his arrest and going, Dad, I'm kind of bumming here. You know, like, this isn't working out the way I anticipated. And I just, I began to think of all the injustice that Jesus faced. The catcalls, the meanness, 
the misunderstanding, the cynicism, the suspicion, the false arrests, the unjust mockings and beatings, and yet he says somehow, I want you to have my joy. I want that to be the kind of joy that's in you so that your joy can be complete. For joy isn't dependent on our good luck and escaping hardship. It isn't dependent on our good health or our avoidance of pain. Christian joy is actually the joy that's known in pain, in suffering, in loneliness, and in misfortune. Here's the good news of Advent for all of you in pain this morning. Advent means appearing. It means coming. And Jesus did not come to Palestine. A bit of dirt was not his destination. You are his destination. He came to you. He came to make himself precisely present to you. He didn't even come to a people in that sense, the way we would think of nation states today or various political entities, tribal, however we would you know, think of that. Jesus came to you. His destination was not necessarily a time, the way we think of space and time. The advent has to do with you, your pain, your real life, what you're going through, the moments when you ask, can I have hope? Where can I find peace? Is joy possible? You're his destination. Because dirt does not experience joy the way we think of it. But you're his creation, and that's why you're his destination. And look at me, you will be his destination again someday. When he comes back, he's not coming back to like prove to everybody he was right. He's coming back to you again. You were his destination, And the Advent story tells us that you will be, once again, his destination. So these readings invite us to think things like, how should we live then in light of the imminent expectation of Christ's return? And these readings tell us that the path to joy in the way of Jesus is unreserved self-giving. That's the vision of Isaiah. And that's the vision of Thessalonians and of the psalm and of our gospel reading, that, that real joy, sort of humanly speaking, is found in unreserved giving, cooperating with God to be his people. So Advent then turns us from an excessive preoccupation with ourselves to the Christ who's the focus of our worship and to those who are the object of our service. As we finish this morning in have a moment of quiet. You may want to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I just want to suggest to you a few questions. Pick one, sit with it for a few moments. How is the advent of God trying to come into my life, into my world? What do I need to do to prepare for God's advent? Maybe you want to sit with this for a moment. What do I need to change in order to allow God's transformation to take place in me? Or this one. What can we do to help bring about God's transformation in others that they may have joy?